0: Arlie McCarthy, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. First off, let's begin with your academic background. What are your degrees and what are you currently studying?
1: Okay, so I studied, uh, did my undergraduate degree at the University of Melbourne. I studied science and I majored in zoology uh, and I also did a diploma in languages and I studied German.
0: That's an interesting mix.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in high school, I knew I liked science and I knew I liked biology in particular, but was sort of open to just about anything. I guess my other favorite subject was German. And I'd been to Germany and in between finishing school and starting university, I also spent eight months in Germany working at a boarding school for disabled children. So I had a lot of connections to Germany and that was something that I wanted to pursue. So I continued that at university as well.
0: And you're currently in Cambridge. What's your degree that you're studying there?
1: Yeah, so I'm doing a PhD in zoology and also I'm based at the British Antarctic Survey uh, who are also in Cambridge. And I did, before I moved to the UK, I did do a master's in marine and Antarctic science uh, at the University of Tasmania in Hobart.
0: So, <laughs> okay, just in a little masters, yes.
1: <laughs> so I was I was already interested in uh, Antarctic science and marine biology before before I came to Cambridge, uh, and but Cambridge because the British Antarctic Survey is a fantastic place for me to be.
0: Okay, so I'll get. I will get to that later. I'd like to know um, your application process to become a John Monash Scholar. Was that what? What was it that made you think? You know, what I might I might have a crack at this because there aren't many that are given out.
1: No, so it was partly or almost entirely circumstance. So I'd moved to the UK um, with my partner. And I was looking for all kinds of work, but I had I had thought about doing a PhD, but I didn't want to do one unless I, you know, I really thought that it was time. I didn't want to do it because it was the next thing and I didn't know what to do. So I tried a few other jobs and I realized that when I was job hunting, all the jobs I really wanted required a PhD. And I thought, actually, I'm in Cambridge, the British Antarctic Survey is right here. Um, I had a meeting with a couple of people who ended up becoming my supervisors and thought, yeah, you know what, this is, this is the place, this is the time, I'm going to do it. It's time. Yeah. Uh, and then I thought, okay, well, there aren't many, um, you know, ways of funding being an af- uh, international student. And I thought, I've got nothing to lose. I just need to apply. And so I did, and that was a it was a, a stressful it was yeah, it was a stressful time, but I also knew that applications take a lot of time and effort, and you need people to review them. So I think all in all, not just the Monash application, but the university application, I think it was the equivalent of a part-time job for about a year and a half before I started in terms of the time that went into it so yeah but you know I thought there's nothing to lose.
0: Oh wow how did you finally find out that um, you'd made it?
1: So I had the first round of interviews uh, because I was overseas were um, online and that's right. I'd, I'd asked, if, it was early in the morning, and I asked a friend if I could use their office because so I could have a, a good internet connection and um, the right sort of environment around me. And then uh, once I passed that round, I was actually flown back to Australia for a face to face interview. And I remember getting.
0: Then you knew it was getting serious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually, I. I underestimated how many people were getting face-to-face interviews. <laughs> so I thought they were I thought I had about like a 75% chance of getting a scholarship when I had the face-to-face interview. Turns out it wasn't it wasn't anywhere near that high. <laughs> um, but I think that actually helped me relax and I went in there feeling perhaps more confident, um, which I think probably worked out in my favour. Um, and then I, I was sitting at the airport in Sydney um, about to fly to Melbourne to see my family, and just as I was about to board, I got a phone call saying that I'd got the scholarship, um, which was really exciting.
0: So Melbourne's, Melbourne's home for you? Well, not, not now, but thats is that where you grew up?
1: Yes, yeah. So my parents have been in exactly the same house for my entire life. So home is... Not even just a city, but a specific house.
0: And what was it about zoology that got um, got you curious?
1: For me, that's it was just a very normal and obvious choice. Um, I think I tried to keep my options open a bit and say, "Oh, I don't have to pursue you know that sort of animal science." But I think curiosity and sort of enthusiasm for learning new things had been highly valued in my family anyway and we would go camping and my mum is a plant scientist so she would be showing us things when we were outside in the garden or on holidays just about the natural world and, and getting excited and curious about it and so I think And, I mean, kids like animals. (laughs) There's a reason that, you know, there's a reason that most kids' books, TV shows, clothes all feature animals in some way. And I never really lost that. Um, And so I thought about becoming a vet, but then I thought that actually I'm more interested in wildlife, really, and I rediscovered recently um, you know that I was sending my one or two dollar donations to wildlife conservation charities when I was ten I think so yeah, as much as I think at the time I was like, oh I'm not I'm not setting myself up for anything I'm not definitely going to become a zoologist. I didn't have that kind of clear goal but. The foundations were there from early on, I think.
0: Okay. So you're joining us now from the UK. We are in the midst of a global pandemic um, that's seemingly affected every single part of planet Earth. What was it like living in the UK at the moment?
1: Yeah. So we're just coming to the end of, I think, week nine of lockdown for us. I've been working from home for the last couple of months and work-wise for me initially it was a huge shake-up because I was supposed to be doing two weeks of field work in the Falkland Islands um, in late March and early April. So, um, you know, of course that that trip had to be cancelled or at least postponed for the indefinite um future and that that really changed my research plan um because that's probably a whole
0: this this was part of your studies part of your phd
1: yeah so that was going to be collecting some samples that i need for a large piece of work that would contribute to my thesis but i will no longer be able to fit that into my thesis so i'll have to make do with other samples that I've already had have and other pieces of work. And thankfully, I have, I'm working on a large desk based study at the moment. So I had things that I could keep working on straight away when I had to start working from home. Um, but in the next few months, I am going to need to get back into the lab so I can keep working on some. Other aspects of my project, of my studies, um, and I'm not entirely sure when that will happen or how, but so there is a bit of uncertainty. But I have had work to keep going on, which has been great.
0: Because the people that work from home traditionally, it's like, okay, I've got a laptop, I've got an internet connection, I've got a phone. For you, you actually need to be out there. You, you, you need the outside world and the and the dirt between your toes to um <laughs> to, to to finish your work
1: yeah yeah and thankfully due to well a combination of things that i've chosen f- for my research and just you know technology now it's a lot of you know zoological research marine biology happens at a computer you uh, you don't always need to to be out in the field, but most people do need some field work uh, to be able to at least collect samples or or collect data in some in some format.
0: So, what is the actual topic of your thesis?
1: So, I am trying to understand the risks of accidentally introducing non-native species to Antarctica, and I'm a marine biologist, so I look at marine species and. In particular, I look at things that live uh, stuck to the underside of ships and boats. So people are often aware of barnacles that will stick to ships. They also stick to whales. But um, there are all sorts of other things as well, um, including algae and seaweeds, as well as little things that... Are related to sand fleas that some people might know, um, as well as other little creatures that are related to jellyfish and corals, but they're soft. Um, and they they say stuck to the ship. Um, and mussels, so the same kinds of mussels that we eat uh, also like living on ships. Yeah. So all kinds of things can live on ships. And when the ships go all around the world, then they have the opportunity to move creatures all around the world. And invasive species, and I'm, I'm looking at these ones in particular, but if we move in Australia, we're very familiar with the concept of invasive species and how, how much of a problem they can be if you introduce a new species and...
0: It just... Cane toads, carp.
1: Cane toads, rabbits, carp, you know, we've had a lot of them. And so we don't want to... But Antarctica at the moment has no confirmed populations of non-native marine species and we want to keep it that way. And actually in a similar way to trying to keep a pandemic under control, invasive species go through a similar... Cycle of exponent, or can exponential growth um, in a new area.
0: Is that when so- social distancing of non-invasive species comes into effect? <laughs>
1: well, not not quite, but you need early detection so that you can find them. And then you need to be able to contain the spread and then do something about it. And if you let it go too far, for example, with cane toads, then you have a situation where we can't get rid of them. We just have to try and manage it and minimise the impacts.
0: So can you weave in into your thesis any of this COVID-19 business, like the learnings of social distancing and isolation and flattening the curve? (laughs) Can you bring that into your research paper?
1: I'm not sure, although I did... Uh, see a paper recently that was about invasive species and when they had written it, they had used the analogy of of a pandemic and went into a bit of detail about what that might look like. Uh, But in between when they wrote it and when it was actually published, (laughs) we'd had the COVID-19 pandemic and they thought, oh, we really didn't need the rest of those explanatory sentences because everyone gets it now.
0: I asked you before we came on air whether you'd actually been to Antarctica, and what was the answer?
1: Sadly, no. Um, <laughs> I think I'd, I've spent about 10 years trying to get there, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, <laughs> I think I hope it will.
0: How do you get there? There's a few ways. You go via, like, South America or, you know, via, like, Tassie, I suppose.
1: Yeah. So, and actually this comes... Pretty closely to a lot of my research because I spend at the moment most of my days trying to understand how the pathways that ships take to get to Antarctica because I'm trying to understand what they might be bringing with them. So, um, but so there there are some two modes of transport you can either go on a ship or you can fly, and then if you're on a ship or actually either, you either sort of go through South America and either uh, Chile, Argentina, or or sometimes just through the Falkland Islands, Um, or if you want to come from the other side of the world and visit East Antarctica, then um, Australia, so Hobart, but also Perth has ships that go to Antarctica and New Zealand has quite a few. Uh, South Africa also has Uh, gateway ports, as they're known. So there are quite a few, but the vast majority of traffic uh, goes through South America.
0: You, You hear a lot in the media about climate change. Now, I don't want to open up a massive can of worms here, but can you give us your take on, do you hear about the polar ice caps melting, human influence changing the climate? As a marine biologist, someone who's studying the science world, what is your take on our climate and our environment and whether it's changing?
1: So it is undoubtedly changing. There's there's no question about that. And it's very obvious in places like the Poles because, you know, at, at freezing temperature there's a really clear visual and physical indication of a change in temperature because if it's cold enough, you get ice. If it doesn't get cold enough, you don't get ice. So you can really see those changes, and they are they are happening. It's it's not it's not a future uh, change. It is happening now, and we are seeing ice loss or changes in duration of the ice. So it's not always sea ice isn't always in place all year round. In some places it's there all the year, um, in other places it's not. But it's definitely happening and it is having a really big impact on the environment both locally in terms so you know, I spend all my time thinking about what's happening in Antarctica and there are big changes there. But Antarctica is also connected via ocean currents to the rest of the world. And so what happens in Antarctica matters for the rest of the world as well.
0: So is there a way, and I've seen documentaries particularly concentrating on the Arctic Circle, is there a way for those uh, icebergs, the polar caps, to somehow restore, heal themselves, or is it a case of once they're gone, that's it, they never return?
1: I think, and I'm not a... Uh, An expert in ice or glaciology or even oceanography but there's quite a big lag between say greenhouse gas emissions and temperature increase and then the ice loss that we see so even if we were able to prevent temperature increasing at all or even if we stop greenhouse gas, gas emissions now the temperature would still increase and we would still see ice loss and it may be that in a very long to- period of time the ice might return but we're talking well beyond um, the, the sort of time frame that um, we can really imagine because the lag means that we're going to see um, less and less ice anyway, no matter what we do now. But That's not to say that we shouldn't take action.
0: What about, though, have you seen some of the pictures um, while we've all been in lockdown of you know the dolphins in the canals of Venice and you can finally see the Himalayas from India? Or, <laughs> like the world seems to be just having a good time at the moment. The environment's just taking a break while everyone's in lockdown. There's no heavy machinery and I think everyone's just having a nice deep breath.
1: Yeah, and I think I think some of those uh, images have been really really great to see because it does show that if we that that there is po- possibility for certain environments or or animals to bounce back if given the opportunity, but at the same time, I would never suggest that putting the world under lockdown would be the way to go to address issues associated with climate change or even habitat and biodiversity loss. So while it's been great to sort of have a clear um, signal in a way, it needs a really considered approach and a, a considered deliberate approach so that, you know, we don't have to keep people under lockdown uh, because that's that doesn't work. That's that's not a long-term goal <laughs> by any means. Um, yeah, no, we can do both. And I think, given that um, Australia, as well as the UK and and other countries, are going to have a very serious period of rebuilding, I think we have an an opportunity to say when we rebuild, we need to rebuild in such a way that. Um, we take into account the impacts of the lifestyle that we currently have uh, on the environment and and the greater world. Um, And I think, so something that I found really interesting was that just in lockdown in, in different places, some places had a huge reduction in their greenhouse gas emissions because they'd already adopted, say, renewable energy sources which meant that most of their emissions came from transport, whereas other countries or other regions didn't see such a large drop in, or proportionally anyway, drop in emissions because their primary energy sources uh, weren't were not um, renewable or you know they emitted greenhouse gases, and I think that to me really highlighted that different places need a different different response and personal actions like reducing um, car use and that sort of thing are important everywhere, except that in some places that has a a bigger impact than others depending on other factors about that society.
0: Now, I've got a note here saying you've got a side project on the go called Hola Alien Hunters. Mm. What on earth is that?
1: (laughs) Well... Um, Yeah, Polar Alien Hunters, Uh, we're still getting it up and running, but it's uh, really an educational and biosecurity engagement project about invasive species in polar regions. And it came about uh, because I was talking to a friend and we realized that we can say that we're biologists and we study invasive species in the polar regions, but that's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, invasive species um, or non-native species, (coughs) excuse me, are also known as alien species and so we thought oh we're we're polar alien hunters, we are looking for these alien species and so we're creating a series of comics um, to explain what we do as well as some of our research and also what people can do if they go for example to Antarctica As a tourist or as a scientist, and we're going to work with a lot of uh, organizations and operators that go to Antarctica so we can make sure that there's a consistent message uh, getting to those who go about, you know, cleaning their equipment and making sure they're not actually accidentally taking any insects or seeds to Antarctica.
0: Okay, so let, let's let's think of um, post COVID. You're still studying. When do you think, real realistically, given the obvious setbacks in, in in you getting out into the field, you might finish all things being equal your PhD.
1: So I'm hoping to still be able to meet my hard deadline of September next year. So. My plan is to submit perhaps a different uh, PhD thesis than what I had originally envisaged but still finish within the same timeframe. So, yeah, September next year. Hopefully I'll be done.
0: And when can we expect you back home for a visit, back to Australia, to say hello?
1: Oh, yeah, I'm not sure. I think that depends a lot on um, when travel restrictions potentially are, are eased, um, I would really like to come back at least for a visit in the next, uh, you know, year and a half. But, you know, sooner if possible. But who knows? It's hard to say right now.
0: Okay, I want to finish on this question and I've asked this of a, a few of the scholars. What's your, what's your advice to, to students that are in their final year of school? The exams are coming up. They know they probably have to do something. They're not sure. Do you have any advice for them about how to either apply themselves or what might lie ahead?
1: Yeah. So I think I probably have two um, two uh, suggestions or potentially pieces of advice based on on my experiences and. Um, you know, you, you do have to work hard, uh, do enough so that you can get good grades, because that really does um, keep your options open. But at the same time, I wasn't, I was never the very best student, you can still be a very good student without being the very, very best. So make sure you take the time to do things that that keep you sane, and that, that make you happy as well. Um, and and that that's a really important thing. But also, if you don't know what you're going to be doing, that doesn't matter. I, I went to university studying a wide range of things. You know, in my first year, I was doing biology and psychology and chemistry and German. And I did a few other art subjects as well along the way. And taking that time allowed me... And, and trying a lot of different things allowed me to settle on something that, you know, ultimately I've decided I really want to pursue in a pretty serious way. But I didn't know that uh, when I started and that's fine. So I think, yeah, work hard but but do the things that make you happy on the side as well. Hopefully working hard also makes you happy. Um, and don't be afraid to try different things and and wait for ideas and inspiration to come if you're not sure about what direction you'd like to take.
0: That sounds like great advice. Ali McCarthy, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed speaking to you.